This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast that brings you queer speculations and conversations from the post-apocalyptic present. I'm your host, Nina. And today, I'm honored to be able to start off season three of the podcast with this interview. It was recorded early this summer with M.E. O'Brien and Eman Abdahadi. Together, they co-wrote the brilliant, world-shifting, speculative novel, Everything for Everyone. If you haven't read it yet, go and get it. I had multiple people ask me to cover this book on the show, and I'm really grateful that Emmy and a man were up for a conversation. I'll start you off with their bios and then tell you a little bit about the book, and then we'll get into it. Iman Abdahari is an academic, artist, and activist who writes and thinks at the intersection of gender, sexuality, politics, and identity. She's co-author of Everything for Everyone, and her academic work has been published in numerous peer-reviewed journals and covered by press outlets including the Washington Post, Associated Press, and NPR. Abdelhadi received her PhD in sociology in 2019 and is currently an assistant professor at University of Chicago. Emmy O'Brien writes and speaks on gender freedom and capitalism. She's the author of Everything for Everyone, and her second book, Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care, was published by Pluto Press in spring of 2023. She co-edits two magazines, Pinko on Gay Communism and Parapraxis, which is on psychoanalytic theory and politics. Her work on family abolition has been translated into Chinese, German, Greek, French, Spanish, and Turkish, and her writing has been published by Work, Employment and Society, Social Movement Studies, Endnotes, Hominturn, Commune, and Invert. As a side note, I've also read both Family Abolition and Parapraxis, and both are absolutely fantastic reads, with so much to offer for anybody who's thinking about how to imagine our ways out of capitalism and into systems that serve human life. So previously, Emmy O'Brien also coordinated with the New York City Trans Oral History Project and worked on HIV and AIDS activism and services. She completed a PhD at NYU where she wrote on how capitalism shaped New York City LGBTQ social movements. You can find her on Twitter at Gender Horizon, and you can also become her patron on Patreon. All right. So everything for everyone, an oral history of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072. It came out from Common Notions Press in 2022, and this book is a speculative history of the future, of the like very recent past of near future. So it really kind of includes our lives, and in fact, it's narrated by fictional versions of Emmy and Iman themselves. Um, they're they're like you know very old, looking back on a life of activism and on this transformation that has happened in the world of the book. So it takes place in the 2060s and 70s, and it's a book of oral histories. So it's recording these imaginary interviews um, with people who were there about their memories of the worldwide communist revolution that results in the end of capitalism and the liberation of everyone to share equally in everything. It's funny, it's smart, it's challenging, it's moving. It has made me sob with longing pretty much every time I've read it, um, and I've read it multiple times now. And I'm really honored to be able to share this interview with you about it, and I'm particularly honored to do that right now as millions of people all across the world are in the streets marching for Palestinian liberation and an end to the genocide in Gaza. And those are central parts of the revolution that's imagined in this book. I'm so glad to welcome you both to Queers at the End of the World. It's really such a privilege to have you both here. Everything for Everyone is a book that came into my awareness about a year ago, just because every, I think every, you know, radical puppeteer, you know, marching band member, artist, thinker in my life was talking about it and was talking about what an experience of pleasure it was to read. And having read it, it is such a, such a profound experience of hopefulness 
in addition to all of the other feelings that it wakes up. So thank you both so much for making it. It feels like an absolutely necessary book in this moment when there's not a ton of hope that's going around. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much. It's been so amazing hearing everyone respond to it and and seeing it out in the world. Has the response been different than what you were expecting? Did you have expectations when you when you put it out? Well, Emmy thought we would sell a total of a thousand copies. <laughs> that was her entire <laughs> aspiration for the book. Um, and um, so I think we both thought, oh, we just wrote this weird little novel with this, you know, tiny lefty press and it'll be great if our friends read it. And it was just a fun thing to do, but we've been pretty astounded by how it's, how it's taken off in the world. And I have to say, one of the great pleasures has been seeing it taken up in different ways that even I didn't expect. But yeah, I I get students also on campus sometimes. I had a student come up to me yesterday at a Palestine event and she said you know I read this book at a low moment in my organizing and I was sort of about to quit and it gave me a lot of hope and that was just I I teared up (laughs) as soon as she said that I just was like well that's the best thing that could possibly happen (laughs) that a young organizer would feel inspired to keep going I think that's the highest aspiration I could have for anything I put out in the world really Mm. I'm wondering for both of you, when you decided to create everything for everyone, like what kinds of needs was making this book meeting for you and how did it happen in your friendship? Well, this was entirely Emmy's idea. She had published a version, one of the one of the chapters Kyla Puan, Emmy had published previously in an online magazine. And she also had put together this amazing role-playing game um, for folks yeah right after the 2016 election and it was a role-playing game where we were in the 2050s fighting the fash in New York City as CUNY students yeah and so I was one of the players it was my first role-playing game ever and so she had she proposed that we write this book that was a novel version of the that fictional oral history that she had already published. And part of her pitch to me was that I could write up my character from the role-playing game. So if folks have read the book, Bilkis Chaudhry was my character uh, in the game. So I got to sort of write out the rest of her life, um, which was really cool. Um, but yeah, I like to say that, you know, the book is a really a culmination of a, of a decade-long friendship. Um, Emmy is a political teacher and someone I've learned a lot from and also someone that really introduced me to the world of speculative fiction. Um, she made the argument to me that speculative fiction or that science fiction generally was the sort of historical materialist <laughs> version mm-hmm. of uh, literary genre. That definitely got me on board <laughs> to read more sci-fi. So in in many ways, this book is exactly the book that we would write together, I think. Yeah, I've, I've loved science fiction for a long time. And there's a variety of subgenres I like, but certainly work that tries to imagine what's beyond capitalism has been important in being able to think, being able to grapple with the present and relate to the horrors of the present. 
And something that I've been talking about a lot in discussing the book with people is how I think there is speculative visioning that happens in social movements all the time that we don't really name as such and we don't really emphasize as much as we could. And that came up for me around the George Floyd rebellion, I guess, towards the end of the time of finishing the book in watching millions of teenagers or hundreds of thousands of teenagers taking up abolition of the police as like a serious topic of discussion, of debate, of visioning together. And in the midst of these enormous protests, like a revolutionary horizon became conceivable to people in a way that it, it isn't usually. And I've seen that a few times in my life, and it's always very beautiful and it strikes me that we we are thinking about futures all the time when we organize. We're implying futures in the way that we work, in what we're fighting for, in what we demand, and that, that actually spinning those out as speculative visions could be a very powerful tool for our work in the present. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a there's a quote from the introduction to the collection that Adrian Mee Brown put together called Octavia's Brood, which is activists writing short stories and speculative fiction That's that all organizing is speculative fiction. Um, I love that this began with a role-playing game. We cover a lot of role-playing games on this show, and it's kind of been part of the community-making that we've done and the like utopian imagining that we've done together. And I, I guess I, it makes me wonder, like, why was that part of your response to, to 2016? Yeah, so I, I've i always enjoyed gaming. I enjoy it as a group activity. I enjoy it as a collective visioning. I probably did my the most of my gaming in middle school and mm-hmm. transitioned out of it around the time I became politically active, mostly because of time and when I was mm-hmm. probably 17 years old or so. This was in the 90s. Notably, when I transitioned out of role-playing, I began to write novels and wrote a novel that year and wrote another Mm. novel three or four years later that I never published. And I found novel writing to be much more lonely than role-playing. But the sort of collective narrative building, I think, is quite magnificent. And the game design was set in Tribeca, the location of a CUNY school called BMCC. And all of the characters were CUNY students. And they all had life trajectories that for one reason or another brought them to the cusp of being revolutionaries. And they all had sort of some relevant skill, but were not super powered in any meaningful way. You know, like perhaps they were a medic or they were a good driver or they had been come back from a war in Iran or other things. And meanwhile, like revolutionary shit was kicking off all over New York City and all over the world. And there was a a crisis of policing in Tribeca Mm -hmm. and a kind of depopulation as wealthy people moved out Mm -hmm. and a moment of political opportunity where students could do things that wouldn't be possible otherwise and like rolling strikes and riots happening around New York City. And so, you know, the the space of the game was people thinking about this sort of cusp of this revolutionary moment and how they would want to politically engage when there really were opportunities on the table that with uncertain outcomes. And that embodies or reflects something in like these moments in in 
mass struggle where incredible things seem possible mm. you know sort of moments in the middle of when the police are on the run when people really control the streets when things are unfolding chaotically but in a way that is rapidly expanding the space of political possibility and that that as a kind of necessary antidote to the despair of of the political present so much of mm -hmm. the time and certainly in 2016 thinking mm -hmm. about the kind of rise of uh, fascist forces in the u.s yeah thinking about how speculative fiction and how like creating these spaces of possibility in fictional kind of group projects like rpg games can help us to move toward those moments both like providing this social space and also like ha helping with the actual imagining of it these characters that end up in this book like I think the 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 person who comes most to mind for me when I'm reading everything for everyone I know that Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed has often been kind of a first space of imagining a possible abolitionist future like a future in which people don't know what prisons are um for many readers and you know for guests on the show and I'm wondering if The Dispossessed was an important object for both of you I don't know whether there's a relationship between that ambiguous utopia and this one. I love Le Guin a lot. And I think I might have read all of her fiction <laughs> work at some point over the last 25 years. And she certainly had a big influence on me. And I feel a lot of inspiration in her work. I deliberately didn't reread The Dispossessed mm. as I was working on this, nor did I read several other books that people were recommended that, mm. you know, this is a first published novel. I really wasn't sure how to sort of grapple with the kind of meaning of influence and mm. imitation and whatnot. And I think it's been 20 years since I read The Dispossessed. Mm. And thankfully, people who have read it much more recently have had a lot of things to say about intersections between them with without necessarily thinking it was imitative, like mm -hmm. that they have rich differences and similarities. Definitely. Are there other influences that come to mind for for you or for you, Iman, that have been in your mind as part of the inheritance of this book? You mentioned Adrian Marie Brown, and certainly Adrian Marie Brown uh, and Walida Imarashi, who, Walida, mm -hmm. who I knew from when I lived in Oregon, um, have their anthology Octavius Brood, I think was definitely an inspiration for me. And I got to participate in a, a couple of workshops at the Allied Media Conference that included Very speculative cool. fiction elements that Brown organized. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, the discussions that they really helped initiate and develop uh, around the left have been very, very helpful to me. Mm. How about you, uh, Yeah, I mean, I think in, in some ways, uh, I was thinking a lot about broadly kind of theories of social change and thinking a lot about the material world around us and the myths that sustain our ideological commitment to capitalism. And I, I don't, you know, I'm not an idealist in my theory of how history changes and moves by any means. But I, because I think that the power of fiction is in many ways in 
it's his ability to open up imagination. I think that the work of a book like this, ideally, is, yeah, to open up spaces to question some of the orthodoxies that we're taught as citizens in a capitalist world run by the modern nation state. So I think some of the things I had, I, I read this book, and I didn't agree with all of it. And I, I think it diverges from my politics in many ways. But one of mm. the books I had read right before we started writing was fully automated luxury communism um yeah i i think the author's name is aaron bastani but you know one of the sort of premises of the book is that we actually live in this world of plenty right mm -hmm. but one the idea that 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 we can only have technological change under capitalism is mm -hmm. false um it points to the fact that a lot of our technological innovations have been publicly funded um but also to the idea that we are constantly accelerating in terms of technological change towards a world of abundance um that it, a world in which we actually can work less and less for higher and higher standards of living and so for mm. me while the book doesn't part with the state uh, as much as I would like it to I think for me it was about imagining a space in which we take back this kind of human collective knowledge right and imagining what it's like for us to benefit from all of this knowledge without having it mediated by the market or or the modern nation state um, so that type of thinking, I think, was really influential for me. And another book that comes to mind is actually David Graeber's last book, The Dawn of Everything, which talks about the sort of liberal enlightenment theory of human nature, you know, which is that we are, you know, the sort of Hobbesian right. idea that we are, you know, greedy and and mm -hmm. and evil and that we would just tear each other to sh shreds. And because of that, we need, you know, these systems in order to govern us. And the book really questions that and goes back to a lot of pre-capitalist modes and pre-agricultural modes even to think about how humans have related to each other in different ways. And so I think that opened up a lot of imaginative space for me as well. As we present the book, especially to, to younger folks, there's this kind of tendency to be like, well, what are we going to, you know, how could we survive? You know, this kind of belief right. that um, that human nature is this is ungovernable without force or, or power. And so some of the denaturalizing, I think, of, of these ideas was, was really important to me as we were writing. Yeah, it's interesting. I think especially as someone who grew up in New York, um, the, the visions of like New York destroyed that are so central to so many apocalyptic imaginaries, like the sort of image of the, the Empire State Building falling um, as like the like the end of the end of sort of the world as we know it um, we're we're like constant uh, for me growing up and then of course 9-11 happened and that happened in in reality um, like watch just watching those buildings fall and I think the um, the experience of sort of having that be wrapped into a narrative of revenge that resulted in you know, the, the horrific destruction in Afghanistan and Iraq was like a pretty formative moment for me as, as a person growing up in this dystopian moment. And I'm wondering kind of like as you're talking about where this sense of like human abundance and support for one another comes from in your own experience as as New Yorkers, as like New York expats and just, just as, as people, where did that recognition that people could support each other come from for you 
Yeah, I mean, for me, from struggle, you know, from from the street, Mm -hmm. from moments of crisis in which we see people immediately jump to their best selves, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that it's exactly the opposite of the world that Hobbes would predict, right? Mm -hmm. It's that when we've had these major hurricanes, when we've had these major earthquakes, when we've had these moments of street occupations, all of these things, that's actually when you see people at their best and it eventually breaks down because we are under conditions that are not structured for collective action and that in fact are structured to destroy collective action um, and to destroy Mm -hmm. any attempts to take care of each other right but in the beginnings of these things that's when we see people's instincts kick in and this is people's instincts even people who have lived under capitalism, who have lived under these ideological structures, in these moments of crisis or in these moments of collective action, we see people come together and build magnificent things so quickly. I mean, I'm in many ways a child of the Arab Spring. I was in college when the Arab Spring popped off and I remember sitting there and watching footage, I'm half Egyptian, and watching footage of the streets in Egypt and the tents that people set up and the ways they took Mm -hmm. care of each other. And it was so beautiful. And of course, they didn't win. But the fact that they didn't win wasn't about a breakdown in their nature. Mm -hmm. It was about the conditions that they were fighting and that those conditions ultimately being stronger. And I think that's been the case over and over. But the evidence, you know, the evidence for what we can do when we get together, the evidence for our kind of natural instincts, I think, are err on the side of good. They err on the side of compassion and collectivity and creativity. And those have been some of the most beautiful moments of my life, you know, of cleaning out someone's basement after Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy or whatever, or sleeping on the streets at an occupation with my comrades. Those are the moments that I think keep me believing in the power of human life, even as we live in this incredibly dystopic time. Uh, yes, I'd uh, say something very similar. Um, and then I've both been organizing for a long time and been involved in many different types of struggles. And there's uh, just a tremendous beauty in the solidarity and care that can emerge between them, between people uh, fighting together. And most uh, saw that not long ago here in New York, both around the uprising, but also prior to that, when COVID hit here very hard in the first couple Mm. months of March and April of 2020, over 20,000 people died over the course of just Mm. a couple of months. And, you know, multiple people died in my building and in my life. And you could Mm. hear ambulances all the time. And all over New York, it became commonplace for people to go door to door and talk to each other and figure out who needed help procuring groceries, right? Many of the grocery stores were cleared out or closed. Mm -hmm. Who needed help figuring out food? Who needed medical care? And how to watch out for each other, how to do our best in the middle of this crisis of state failure, how to do our best to take care of each other. And very quickly, Following that, thousands of rent strikes broke out Mm -hmm. all over New York. And that moment also didn't last, but there was a moment there that it became widespread and mainstream in New York to talk to your neighbors about possibly not paying rent. And lots and lots of people did it. Um, And we've, we've seen many, many examples of that. 
You asked specifically about New York, and I think New York occupies such an interesting and contradictory place in the popular imagination mm. that New York manages to sort of bring together all of these contradictions that are such a major part of life under capitalism. Mm. And for mainstream movies, destroying New York, I think, can be particularly rich because it can give rise to very contradictory interpretations depending on your audience. Mm -hmm. So for some people, New York is a city of crime and poor people and migrants and queers and trans mm -hmm. people, sort of like heathenous, you know, Sodom of, of <laughs> uh, and I don't know, I'm into Star Trek and I'm on Star Trek Facebook groups and there'll be an event in New York and people would be like, oh my God, I would never go to New York. You'd just be <laughs> robbed right away. <laughs> um, and, you know, for a long time, New York has been associated with Jews and, you know, there's like many layers that on the right can really be appealing in thinking about New York being destroyed. And then New York is also, right, the empire, the sort of heart of mm -hmm. global capitalism and extreme wealth and really massive power in an American empire. So, you know, depending on who you are, its destruction takes on very, very different meanings. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a little bit of that in the book. Uh, I think the book is very much a kind of love letter to New York, a great mm. appreciation of New York, kind of rooted in our mutual love of New York uh, and our commitment to the city and to all the rich struggles here. And that New York is sort of embodies the richness and, and beauty of the multiracial working class and, mm -hmm. and its power and possibility and the tremendous violence of racial capitalism. And our book is about that overcoming. Mm. I love that. I love that so much. And yeah, the New York you see destroyed in your average apocalyptic movie is is whichever New York lives in your mind. I think that yeah. that's so true. Um, I thinking about love, it makes me want to ask you this question about Belhus Chowdhury, who you were playing at the role playing table <laughs> in so many years ago. Um, so this character is in a chapter about organizing at BMCC, the Borough Manhattan Community College, and talks about this experience. You know, it sounds like this is kind of straight out of your own life, Iman, but uh, mm -hmm. there's a line in there where Belhu says, I felt like I was falling in love with everybody. Like I kind of discovered the kind of person I could be through being in struggle with other people. And that quote is so evocative of something that I think a lot of people feel. And I think to your point, M.E., about the experience of New York and COVID, I think that a lot of people have felt for the first time in this so complicated moment that includes all of this joy and hopefulness and possibility and all of this, you know, the rise of fascism and everything else that's happening right now. But the joy of resistance, I think, like the 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 thing that makes you think, hell yeah, we can do a rent strike is something that I think a lot of Americans are for the first time experiencing in response to the uprisings. And it makes me want to talk about the erotic as like part of revolutionary struggle and as part of this book and we have that like image of like the single like you know sexy french guy on the barricades in the french revolution <laughs> waving his hot hot flag and i'm i'm just i'm wondering like i think in everything for everyone my experience of it is it's not like a person is magnetic it's like the whole atmosphere of doing the work 
and seeing it happen, like seeing the revolution happen, seeing abundance happen, having a future as a possibility, like the future is sexy in this book. And I, I <laughs> would love for y'all to talk about like how you were thinking about sex and desire and the erotic as you were writing and kind of what you wanted to represent when you were thinking about sex and desire and the erotic in the in the imaginative world. I think you spoke to a major dimension of it, which is the love and erotics of collective protest and collective action together. Our book certainly has a lot of that, and we're very interested in the sort of vibrancy in life of collective struggle. There are also elements of it that have to do with the how trauma plays out in sexuality, right? There's a lot mm -hmm. of trauma in the book, mm -hmm. and some of the characters make references, S. Adams and others, to their trauma having a really big impact in making it very difficult to be in their bodies and to mm -hmm. be with other people. And part of the revolutionary society is people trying collectively to heal through that trauma and that having some relevance to sexuality. There's also a way that the book draws so heavily from queer struggle, right? Everybody in the book is queer or trans. Mm. Queer and trans liberation have played an integral role in reshaping society and reshaping what everyone imagines is possible. You know, the history of erotic joy as being a dimension of queer struggle, like clearly infuses the book. And then that unfolds across a whole register of thinking about transformed social reproduction. So one of the major themes of the book is overcoming the private family, abolishing mm. the family as a social institution. And people continue to form families and form romantic partnerships and form parenting relationships, but in this broader collective world of the commune as the main unit of social reproduction involving hundreds of people. And then the other register that I just sort of mentioned is I, in working on my book about family abolition, mm -hmm. I became interested in the work of Charles Fourier, an early 19th century French utopian socialist who had many problems and many ludicrous things about him um, <laughs> and many reasons to reject him. But also there were elements of his work I found really exciting and very vibrant. And one of those was he really believed that the overcoming of capitalism and the abolishing of material scarcity in class society necessarily would be one that would enable erotic joy mm. on a large scale and enable the kind of flourishing of human pleasure as an integral part of society. Yeah. So much of collective pleasure in our world right now is tied up with collective consumption Mm -hmm. right? We like go to clubs and spend money. We buy porn. People have like a private eroticism in individual relationships. But when we start imagining like group eroticism on some level, like not necessarily orgies, but like large numbers of people enjoying themselves together, mm -hmm. enjoying their time together, that that gets very tied up with these highly commercialized and commodified spaces. And that part of what protest and kind of the possibility of the revolutionary commune in our book mm. is that we could enjoy life together. Mm. And that's something that Fourier really passionately believed in. Some ways that feels also like a little bit of part of the love letter in New York for me, just thinking about all of the experiences that I've had of like sitting on a blanket in a park that has you know just thousands of people fitting yes. into a small lawn of exactly. grass your body's right next to a stranger's in so many situations in New York and 
experiencing something pleasurable together. Yeah. yeah, I think that's exactly right. I've experienced that many, many times. Was mm -hmm. in Sunset Park for a birthday picnic last Saturday. And mm -hmm. Sunset Park was just packed full of people. You know, yeah. like, uh, it's just incredible. The richness of Mexican people, Chinese Americans, all people from all over mm -hmm. the world, um, partying, playing music, hanging out together, playing games, all sorts of different kinds of parties. And all this being packed together within sight of each other mm. with this incredible view of the Statue of Liberty in Manhattan in the distance. Oof, what a picture. <laughs> yeah. It's a magical place. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit, if we can, about Palestine for a moment. In the week when we're recording, this is very close to the anniversary of the Nakba. Mm -hmm. And have you know been speaking a little bit about some of the ways in which this book for me kind of touches on my own experience just as a person growing up in New York and also growing up as a Jew in New York and I was raised conservative in a very pro-Israel community and have mm -hmm. a lot of education from that up upbringing to undo maybe for that reason one of the things that I found really particularly moving about the interview specifically where Emmanuel writing about the moment, like the Levant Commune in the book, which is based in Palestine, is one of the first to form in this worldwide communist society. Mm -hmm. And it's an incredibly moving chapter. And I think for, for me as a reader, with the history that I have as a reader, I'm thinking about like all of the elders that I grew up with who had this sort of dismissive attitude toward, like there was sort of no other way to do things than the violence that mm -hmm. was occurring and had occurred because there was too much violence already. You know, mm -hmm. Israel had already done too much. And so, you know, there was no, no other way of, of seeing the future. And so, mm -hmm. and I think that too is a really common trope in post-apocalyptic imaginaries that are produced by mainstream media. There's this mm -hmm. figure of the radicals who like get power and then they just take revenge on whoever had power before it, that happens in the last of us and it, it like feels really clearly like a projection you know mm -hmm. in in so many ways folks who do violence think that other people will do violence to them right and in this chapter there's such a there's a huge amount of grace i think is is mm -hmm. part of what was so moving to me like even when it's you know a siege of a settlement and mm -hmm. there's obviously a lot of violence in this chapter too but I'm wondering about like your choice in writing this to include such a focus on mercy when you're imagining Palestine's liberation. Yeah, um, that's such a beautiful question. Thank you so much for that reflection and and, and that question. It's yeah, it's a uh, it's a particularly emotional time to think about this. Yeah, uh, you know, and you know, and right. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm tempted to give you a very technical answer that, you know, says something mm -hmm. about the nation state and how, you know, if you don't have liberation within the framework of the nation state, you know, within the framework of borders and territoriality and that sort of thing, then then it opens up all this possibility for for different kinds of action. You know, that's that's one kind of version of the answer, right, that says that in so many ways, this kind of exchange, this cycle of violence is necessitated by the form that is the nation state, right? This, this cycle of like, of exclusion, of territory claiming, of sort of like, 
of building, uh, you know, in, in, in a lot of the Palestinian struggle circles that I run in, which of course tend towards the left, there's the saying that people say, well, I, the only flag I would ever raise is the Palestinian flag. And that's only until the day that Palestine is liberated. And once Palestine is liberated, we raise no flags because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a recognition that the idea of nationhood is a temporary solution that's you know that nationhood is is forced on us by the situation of exile but that ultimately liberation lies beyond the form of the nation right and 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 in thinking about imagining this liberated palestine it was particularly moving to imagine it in this post state moment and in fact as the as the sort of like forefront of a post state moment as the leader of a post state moment um, and I, I think if there's any people in the world who understand the violence of a nation state, it's Palestinians. Um, you know, they understand the violence of citizenship and borders. Um, and of course, you know, I think increasingly our movement recognizes that violence. And so I think, I think the grace is in part um, part of the form. But I also think this is this goes back to what we were saying earlier about a belief about about humans and what we do in collectivity, right? What happens if our movement towards liberation is really truly a collective movement? It's not a movement of prophets or or vanguards or or factions, right? It's not a is not a movement in which there's one group vying for power vis-a-vis, you know, the struggle. Uh, I think that that becomes a movement that it has the sort of uh, foresight to think about how to build life, you know? Mm. And I think we already see that in Palestine. You know, the number of times that I've sat among people in Palestine whose lives are so constricted and ruled by the occupation who will still take moments to say, but you know, there are people who were born here and those people, you know, like, Mm. you know, I don't actually see fantasies of expulsion uh, you know, I haven't, ex- I haven't experienced fantasies. You know, I think there's mm-hmm. this idea that Palestinians are, you know, in a corner planning a genocide or planning <laughs> a mass expulsion. Mm-hmm. But in reality, actually, you know, the conversations on the ground reflect an idea that we're not trying to reproduce the same violence mm-hmm. that was that was done to us. So I think it's all of these things coming together in this chapter. Um, and I'm, you know, just absolutely honored that that they seem to have come across. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm aware of the time and I want to kind of ask my, my wrap up question to make sure that we can get you all out on the hour. That brings us maybe a little bit back to Fourier, who uh, Emmy, you quote in one of the 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 last interviews in the book, which is with Kayla Puan. And Kayla quotes Fourier in the interview, which I think is just like delicious. The idea of like the future is a future in which teenagers are just <laughs> quoting Fourier willy-nilly. Um, and, and the quote is, do not be misled by superficial people who think that the invention of the laws of movement is just a theoretical calculation. Remember that it only requires four or five months to put into practice over a square league, an attempt which could be completed by next summer, with the result that the whole human race could move into universal harmony. So your behavior should be governed from now on by the ease and proximity of this immense revolution. And like, you know, you've both said like you're not 
you don't have a naive approach to revolution. And I think that that comes through in so many ways in this book, which presents, as you're saying, like the experience of trauma that folks have gone through to get here um, and are still working with in their relationships. But there's this feeling in everything for everyone, for me as a reader, that we should just be ready for this to, to go down. And I wonder for both of you, like what you sort of think it means to be ready in this moment for folks to participate in kind of bringing maybe not this exact exact world, but to be moving toward it. Um, I'm not somebody who thinks that revolution is inevitable, Mm. nor am I someone that thinks things are getting sort of progressively better Mm -hmm. or it's a better world. Like, I think we're on a two century long death spiral at the moment. Um, (laughs) It feels that way, death spiral. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, that won't have a single apocalyptic rupture, but just mm-hmm. a sort of continuous piling on of crises. But that all of this is made by people. All of this is made by social relations. All of this is held together by the mass coerced participation of billions of people, right? Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. There, There is no other external force mm-hmm. than people's participation in this system. And that, you know, all the police in the world and all the soldiers in the world could not hold back a different society if we were organized enough, if people Mm -hmm. collectively figured it out to act together. And that that's, you know, that's a tall order. But if the sort of recent, if the George Floyd uprising made clear that actually mass spontaneous insurgency can happen completely unexpectedly. And mm-hmm. it can happen in really remarkable, highly disruptive ways that mm-hmm. touch the lives of huge numbers of people. And history is littered with those. The sense that large numbers of people coming together can be extremely disruptive of the essential, uh, of the existing social order, can reveal our current society as actually highly contingent and precarious and grossly unjust, and can for moments glimpse the possibility of something radically different. Mm. Um, and that that I I I truly believe that the only hope for our species is finding a way out of class society to do it in mass, to do it together, and probably to do it in ways that no one can plan ahead for. Mm-hmm. That there's that there's a element, I mean, I think there's all sorts of organizing that people are doing, mm-hmm. that people should keep doing, that are immensely important. And that what will enable all these different kinds of movements to come together to make the possibility of a revolutionary rupture is one that if we could plan it ahead, our enemies could plan ahead. Right. (laughs) That it's precisely that it comes together in ways that are very hard to foresee. Mm. And that means that the better world is always close. Mm. That it's not that there's like all these activities we have to get done before we can arrive there. Mm -hmm. It's close. And the step to get there, we're not sure how to take that step or when it will arrive but that 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 the sense that this this whole nightmare we're living in is actually a very precarious one Mm -hmm. and it's one that could disintegrate 
in all sorts of different ways and is always in rolling crisis and is always producing new opportunities for rebellion. And, and, um, I, and keeping that sense alive that this world, that this horrible version of the world that we're stuck in right now is precarious as Emmy yeah. just described, mm. that is worth that is worth every moment on the streets. The idea that a an action, a protest, a, a moment was not worth it unless it delivers, mm. you know, the full revolution right there is such a falsity to me. I think to me, it's about, it's that we have to do, we have to engage in these moments in order to continue to see the precarity of a system that continues to insist to us that it is inevitable and that there's nothing else out there, that we could not have anything else, that we do not deserve anything else. And it's only in those moments, right, that we shake the foundations of that system, whether we succeed or not, it's only in those moments that we see the system for what it is. And that alone is worth it, regardless of whether that happens to be the time that we win. So that to me, you know, to me, that's, that's the imperative, right? Is to, to keep doing it, to keep doing it over and over and to know that in doing, doing it is winning on some level, you know? Thank you both so much. This has been such a, a tremendously uh, beautiful conversation and deeply appreciate your time our pleasure well it's a pleasure to join you and thank you so much for having us and for your project thank yeah. you both. i look forward to the to the podcast such a joy this has been queers at the end of the world it's produced by me you know mcquam you can find us online at queerworlds.com on social media at QueerWorldsPod, or just send us an email at QueerWorldsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our cover art was created by Ellie Anagasawa, and you can find Ellie at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly on Instagram. Our music for this episode is La Fin des Haricots by Tintamare. Thanks for listening, and good luck out there, dear hearts. <laughs>